Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Rest is History, or perhaps that should be The Rest is Regional History, because today we want to look at the local. And Dominic, because you and I are English, we're going to focus on the regional history of England. Um, so where, where do the Sandbrooks hail from? That sounds kind of very Hobbit name. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the Sandbrooks actually come from West Wales originally in the sort of mists of time but i'm a shropshire i'm a shropshire lad i'm like a character from ae houseman so you're a midlander yeah i'm a midlander my mum's family came from wolverhampton from bilston in the black country um and i suppose that is my i because i was closer to my mum's family probably that's more the um my sort of black country roots which as you can tell from my accent uh, mean a lot to me you're you're i'm often mistaken on when i'm on the radio for noddy holder um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you're you're, you're much more a, a man of the people than I am, obviously, of because yeah. I uh, bear it, the, the whiff of southern privilege. Even though the Hollands actually originate from Stoke, and we migrated via Birmingham to uh, Salisbury in the heart of Wessex. My mother's family is from the Isle of Wight. I now live in London, so um, we've basically got we've got the southern half of England covered, haven't we? I was about to say, you're a complete southerner, aren't you? Basically, yes. So we need a bit of northern pride. We do. A bit of grit. Yeah. So who who, who have we got with us, Dominic? We have got Dan Jackson, the author of the brilliant The Northumbrian. So he is Mr. Northeastern History. And Dan, I think your claim to fame above all else is that you were the official historical advisor to Cheryl Cole. Is that right? This is true. Yes, we uh, we explored Cheryl's family history um, in North Shields Register Office. A um, bit of on-screen chemistry. You can still see it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> is that how she describes it as well? <laughs> we didn't keep in touch, sadly. But, uh... but so, so, Dan, um, you... Uh... Your book, North- Northumbrians, makes a kind of brilliant case, uh, not just for the significance of Northumbria, but generally, I think, regional history, um, that, that we can learn a lot from looking at the various parts of a country as well as country as a whole. And I guess that, that one of the things you get again and again, not just in England, but in Scotland, in Ireland, in France, in Italy, in America, pretty much anywhere you want to look at, is the idea of a north-south divide. And... Um, Perhaps we could kind of focus on that and just cut Dominic out completely. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to bother with the Midlands. He's been itching um, for this for, for weeks. <laughs> um, so um, to, to kick things off, we've got a, we've got a, a question from um, Kane Carlisle. Um, probably one to cause some controversial debate, and that's good because obviously we want controversial debate. But where would you argue the line between North and South should be drawn? In England, that is not in Great Britain, in England. Well, uh, with my Northumbrian perspective, uh, or specifically a Tyneside perspective to this, I think there is a case to be made that anywhere south of Scotch Corner is basically (laughs) a wasteland of um, warm beer and Morris dancing. Um, But I think think there's a good case to be made for um, the Mersey-Humber line, 
basically, in England. And there are some border counties along there that it's debatable about which side of the line they should fit in, particularly Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. But basically, I think in English history, the topographical barriers within England still aren't well enough understood. And, you know, rivers, um, hills, forests were difficult to get through, were difficult to traverse mm. for, for a long time. And if you just if you think about the geography of England, if you think about the Mersey and the mosses of South Lancashire, you've probably heard of Moss Side in Manchester. Mosses were sort of marshes, difficult to get through. Then that kind of bled into the Peak District again, you know, quite a formidable range of hills to get across. Then you've got the um, uh, Sherwood Forest, which is the sort of Ardennes of England. It was difficult to, to get through as well. And then you've got the Trent and the Humber, and uh, the, the the seven Trent line, some people often pick that out as a, as a key dividing line in England, which I think is important. Um, but I think the most durable boundary, the dividing north and south, is that sort of straggly line from the Mersey to the Humber, which is difficult to get through. And I think it's interesting that one of the few passes through there is a place called Door outside Sheffield, literally a door, you know, an entranceway that you could get through. And though the, the lands either side of that boundary, which roughly correspond still to this day to the provinces of Canterbury and York and to an extent the kind of Britannia inferior and Britannia superior division of England by the Romans. I think that's a decent starting point, to be honest. So, so Dan, you think it's basically, you genuinely think it's a geographical thing rather than, I mean, obviously there's cultural and economic elements and all the rest of it, but you think that the geography comes first before the other stuff? Yeah, I'm a bit of a geographical determinist on, on this front because I think that then shaped the, the, the culture that grew up on either side of that boundary. Um, you, could, you could also explore things like the geology that was different yeah. on either side, you know, either ends of England. Um, um, the, uh, the sort of upland farming country of the north, which was all pastoral, then you had the richer, more fertile lands of the south, which were largely arable and so on. And then you've got the proximity to the prosperous core of Europe, which was an advantage that the south of England had as well. And uh, I haven't read James Hoare's recent book on the history of England. I was kind of red-pilled a little bit, as I think the young people say, about that the persistence of the north-south divide in English history. And we might come on to the politics of yeah. that. But yeah, I think, that, I think that would be my dividing line. Well, I, I mean, talking about the politics and and the way that that has expressed itself throughout time. Since there are three of us, and since I come from the South, Dominic comes from the Midlands, and you come from the North, and the famous tripartite division uh, in the Anglo-Saxon period is between Wessex and Mercia and Northumbria. It might be good to introduce them at this stage, because, of course, the dividing line that you highlight between the Humber and the Mersey is what formed the, the, the fusion of Wessex and Mercia in the wake of Alfred the Great's reign and then um, his his son, Edward. And then Edward's son, Athelstan, he advances from the, the, the Mersey-Humber line and conquers Northumbria. And that essentially is then what constitutes England, the, the United yeah. Kingdom of England, is those the union perhaps of those three kingdoms plus, plus, plus East Anglia. Um, so good good to get them in early and good obviously to get Athelstan in I think he gets his first mention of the series doesn't he <laughs> it does well done um, Tom can I just ask a question now that you've brought that up the Anglo-Saxons Dan what about the Dane law do you think the Dane law is a big thing do you think that's an enduring boundary 
I think it is, yeah. Although it's slightly different in, in uh, from my perspective, again, it, right up in the northeast of England, because the 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 Danes um, certainly raided, but did not settle north of the Tees. And I've always been very interested in the lands between the Tees and the Tweed, as mm-hmm. in my view, forming a separate entity, basically in English history. And it was always that that land was always seen as a bit of a, a buffer zone as well between England and Scotland. Um, yeah. we, ha- we haven't really touched on the northern frontier of all this, but, you know, the border between England and Scotland was pretty much settled in 1018 after the Battle of Carham on the River Tweed. So uh, some people think it fluctuates a little bit, but actually it's been pretty stable for about a thousand years. Well, well Dan, uh, following up from that, we've got another question from Sean Barnes, and this leads in very quickly, which is, does the north of England, in other words, have more in common with Scotland than it does with the south of England? That's an interesting question because, of course, Scotland is also a united kingdom, a stitched together of many different identities. And one of those identities, obviously, is the Northumbrian identity. Yeah, I think so. I think a useful way of looking at, to to an extent, a useful way of looking at um, my Northumbria is if you think of a Venn diagram of England and Scotland, Northumbria is a sort of shaded overlapping section because it does it does feature, I mean, from my point of view, if you look at the similarities between cities like Newcastle and Glasgow and Edinburgh, there is there is an affinity there in culture and architecture in trading patterns in the industrial base of those places, enthusiasm for football and beer and uh, <laughs> machismo and all those sorts of features, which I do, I do think there, there is that cultural sort of um, vibe that you can notice the similarities with. But I mean, it, again, it goes back to um, very early medieval period because the kingdom of Northumbria really goes right the way up to, to where Edinburgh is now. It does, yes, and uh, there are some of us with kind of revanchist devi- designs on the banks uh, <laughs> of the fourth. Um, but um, but yeah, the uh, but, but that that that, that Anglo Scottish border was uh, was much fought over, and it, and it was slightly complicated too by the, the you know the kings of Scotland uh, held um, held Tyndale as one of their liberties, as well as Huntingdonshire, didn't they? That was one of their wow. possessions in England, as far uh, south as Huntingdonshire. That's an interesting. Yeah, there was there was a, 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 Dr. Francis Young wrote an interesting thing on that recently about whether whether technically Huntingdonshire is still part of Scotland. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's one for Nicholas Sturgeon to. <laughs> Dan, let me just let me just quiz you a tiny bit more on that last question, because it occurred to me in your very first when we were talking right at the beginning that the emphasis on sort of what differentiates North and South slightly sort of um, explodes the idea of an, an England. Mm. So, are you sort of saying? I mean, this question: Does the North have more in common with Scotland? If in uh, can that be true? Because surely the their Englishness is very important to people in the Northeast, isn't it? I mean, Northeasterners follow the England football team; they're not they're not they're not sort of lured away by the siren voice of Nicola Sturgeon, are they? I mean, they, their Englishness surely matters to them intensely. I think it is started to matter more, largely related to football, the kind of the 1990s, Euro 96 phenomenon where you started to see a more assertive English identity. And certainly England's greatest ever footballers came from the northeast of England. There's no question about that, of course. Um, but um, Billy Wright. No, 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 you're great <laughs> mistaken. Um, but I think w- w- what we shouldn't lose sight of the fact, uh, and, and my, my own family is a product of this, is that the north of England was a huge melting pot of English, Scottish, Irish and Welsh in the 19th century so that the, a British identity wasn't, um, you know, in certain quarters, I suppose, a British identity has a slightly distasteful um, 
uh, feel to it. It's kind of Rule Britannia and um, the butchers. Not on this podcast. Not on this podcast. Not on this podcast. But certain certain quarters. But I think it's a good description of the 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 kind of interconnected industrial world of the nineteenth century that connected Glasgow to you know Tyneside, Merseyside, Barrow and Furness was a very Scottish town in the in the in North Lancashire. That was just a fact that there was that there was a huge melding of that population into a, a genuinely British population, in my view. But I think you're right that the the English identity and the, all the polling suggests this is is growing all the time. Um, but I still think that England is basically two nations at least when it comes to North versus South um, in its culture, industrial base, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Following on from that, and this might be a question that um, uh, Dominic would definitely want to come in. It's from Keith Mansfield. And he says, why do people from either north or south ignore the Midlands? Hashtag Midlands, indeed. We exist with a rich history. Yeah, he's quite right, isn't he? Uh, Dan, are are we not guilty of a kind of um, southern-northern carve-up here? Yeah, I think we are. And, you know, in my Midlands are basically the M62 corridor from my vantage point. <laughs> Lancashire and Yorkshire feel like the Midlands to me. But uh, I, I suppose, and it'd be good to get Dominic's take on this, that uh, is, is, are the Midlands that different to the rest of the south of England? Do they, do they have a distinctive? Because I would, I would lump the Midlands in with the south, frankly. Um, That's shameful. Uh, that is shameful. <laughs> um, I think the Midlands are very distinctive. I think there's, I mean, the Industrial Revolution began in Shropshire, the black country. I mean, Dan's frowning because he thinks everything began in the northeast. Um, Did it not begin in the Weald? <laughs> Get a grip of yourself, Tom, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, no, I think the Midlands has a very the distinctive... The of the Weald? The, the Midlands has a distinctive identity. I mean, if you think about the, the West Midlands and industry, mm. uh, it's often founded on engineering, on chain making, on small family-run enterprises, not necessarily big factories, but smaller workshops. And there's definitely a sort of cultural identity. I mean, even tiny things like, you know, fo- you mentioned football, obviously. I mean, yeah. football is shared across um, much of the the North and the Midlands. But when the Football League was started, it tended to be Northern and Midlands clubs. So in that sense, the Midlands feels more Northern. Yeah. Um, there are sort of distinctive drinks. There are distinctive dialects. You know, a pint of mild, for example, that you would drink in the West Midlands, you wouldn't drink necessarily um in the south so i think there are i think the the midlands has obviously been it has been it is the sort of bosnia of this story isn't it it's the sort of (laughs) it's the sort of the victim of of the greedy eyes of or indeed the the rejectionists on both sides who reject the midlands as part of the of the other world and i guess the other thing that's happened with the midlands is um the decline of industry means maybe the midlands feels a little bit more southern now than it did because you know, nowhere suffered a greater collapse in manufacturing in the first years of the 1980s than the West Midlands did, proportionally. Yeah. Um, and so in that sense, I guess it maybe feels more Southern now than it would have done 50 years ago. But I guess, I mean, that kind of opens up the interesting question about whether regional identities are constant. Um, because, Dan, at the beginning, you suggested that a lot of these are determined by geography and geology, um, which would imply that certain senses of regional identity are things that you can trace right the way, you know, maybe all the way back to the Roman period, perhaps even before. Um, but conversely, the better communications become, the less significant 
geology and geography becomes and perhaps the, the, the more these regional identities fade. And one of the things that, that is fascinating about the Northumbrians is that you absolutely make the case that this is a very, very strong regional identity. But I thought kind of reading it that it, it, it's it's really the, the classic example in England. There aren't regional identities in that scale almost anywhere else, perhaps Liverpool, I guess. Um, can you think of any other, Dominic? I no, I think it's right. I think Northumbria, well, the, the northeast is unusual, partly because it's so far. Do you not think that's, I mean, that's the remoteness is, I mean, remoteness would sound offensive to somebody in the northeast because yeah. they'd say it's the rest of England that's remote. But don't you think that's the key that it's, it's so far away, particularly from London, yep. that it's not been contaminated? That's for want of a better <laughs> word. Um, uh, yeah. I suppose the only other place the producer is suggesting, I'm going to give him the credit since it's his idea and he's quite right, it's Cornwall. So again, they're both kind of peripheral. I mean, they're they're on the edge, aren't they? I mean, that's other. Do you think the Northumbria, the northeast, is is unusual? Do you think Cornwall is a good comparison, Dan? I think you're right about the distance factor, and, and uh, um, there was always a fascination in it in the industrial heyday between Newcastle and London because they were the two largest centres of English population at the furthest distance from each other, and they had this reciprocal symbiotic relationship really because L- london's the big smoke because it started to burn newcastle coal from the 1600s and uh, it relied on that source of fuel power and there was a traffic backwards and forwards and it meant that newcastle you know newcastle as a provincial city was was unusually well connected through the collier ships going backwards and forwards um as that as people realized they didn't need coal anymore that relationship has soured slightly but i i, I it's interesting that we've already we, we started to touch upon the west country because where the West Country fits into this is always a bit of a tricky question. And I've got a, a slight hunch that a, a place like Newcastle has a well-drawn... People from there, the Geordies, have a well-drawn... or There's a well-drawn picture of them in the national consciousness um, in a way that Bristol, I don't think, does necessarily. And my yeah. I've always had this hunch it's because they've never had a good football team. <laughs> and so they've never really featured as much as their size should suggest in the kind of national conversation. But but some I mean Somerset yeah. people kind of stand in for country people, don't they? The the, mm. the 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 it's it's the archetypal rural accent, which is what people will do as the default mode for when they're you know farm farmers mm. or whatever. Um, and so it may be that that that, that um, the lack of a football team is precisely the point. Because you don't yeah. have like you know you need a large kind of and, and Bristol isn't kind of associated with that um, and and, you know, and and the other thing that causes that we're talking that it's something that that we should perhaps talk about is the degree to which England is is a peculiarly urban country mm. um, and we don't have the sense of kind of rural space perhaps that we you get in 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 most other countries and that therefore the idea of of Somerset say as a, a, a place that is rural comes to have all the more significance there are last peasants aren't they uh, we, we, we lost our peasant kind of community earlier than most european yeah. countries i suppose and they stand in the, the, and then there's norfolk i suppose as well as the other region uh, part of england that doesn't fit that easily into this schema i guess of north versus south versus midlands do they stand on a limb a little bit well there's an, there's an increasing thing isn't there dan that um the big divide is not, I, I mean, I think this is increasingly true. It's not North and South, it's London versus, as it were, deep England. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Sort of okay. metropolis and periphery. Okay, so that this brings us on um, to another question from, we'll remember this from previously, uh, Paradoximoron. We oh, yes, I remember Paradoximoron. Um, and he or she asks, how far back does the dominance of London 
as England's premier city go, was it always this way? Um, can I answer that? <laughs> That's shocking. He's asking and answering questions himself. <laughs> well, I mean, it goes back to the Romans because go on, London go on. is a is a Roman foundation. And Talk about what is unusual go on. <laughs> about what is unusual about London um, among Roman provincial capitals is that it wasn't an, a, there wasn't a foundation there already. Um, to begin with, um, the Romans planned to make Colchester the centre because that's the centre of the local um, largest tribal power. But London emerges because it is um, simultaneously the lowest bridging point on the Thames and it's navigable uh, up the Thames estuary. And so it, it again, it illustrates Dan's point that geography is destiny. Um, and it's almost inevitable, I think, that when you have a unitary power in southern Britain, London almost inevitably becomes the, the most significant centre. And the measure of that is that when Roman power collapses in Britannia and the political unity in southern Britain fragments, London goes into decline. Once you have the establishment of a unitary uh, kingdom of England, London, like a massive great spot, the great <laughs> when, slowly <laughs> expands and comes back into power. And I think that, um, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that, that essentially the, um, the political history, cultural history of not just England, but, 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 but of, of Britain and perhaps of, of, uh, Ireland as well is about the gravitational pull of London and the Southeast more generally and how you deal with that, how you cope with that. Dan, how much politically have people in the northeast defined themselves against London and against the idea of a sort of, I mean, to use the sort of the terminology that we're all so familiar with now, the idea of a metropolitan elite? Well, as I said, I think it's soured of late because because it hasn't. We've lost that kind of reciprocity between the two the two places, and we've we've seen we've come to see ourselves more as a sort of benighted uh, province of a distant imperial capital, and. It, if you if you take the the long view of the, the south of England's dominance, and but I suppose you can read it that London's dominance, um, they've they've seen off any any threat to to, to its power um, several times in history, or, or they've been the springboard for, frankly, attacks on the north. Um, you know, if you stand back from it and, and think about, you know. I've always been interested in the harrying of the north in the 11th century by the Normans, and then you've got the Wars of the Roses after that. Um, the Reformation, you know, when the North was the stronghold of um, Catholicism, the Civil War had a North-South dim- dimension, the Jacobite rebellions also. Then you've got Peter Lou and the Chartist Rebellion and all those sort of things, which were kind of fermented in the North, but pretty pretty swiftly dealt with and uh, and put down. And, uh, and you know, from the perspective of, of 2021, uh, London in the South East presides... As it ever has, you know, it's seen off any any of those threats to its dominance, really. Um, and I can't see much changing on that front, frankly. Because, because in a sense, no matter how many government departments or museums or whatever you shuffle around the rest of the country, it, it is the kind of brutal fact of, of geography that, mm. and I suppose of kind of, cultural you know the cumulative effect of centuries and centuries of, of of political and cultural power that makes london so challengingly preponderant yeah yeah there was a brief a briefish period from let's say about 1700 to 1914 when the north almost became preeminent in england 
because of the, the again, going back to um, geology, it found this enormous mineral wealth under its feet. And, uh, you know, places like the northeast of England, where uh, Newcastle became the sort of Dallas or Dubai of the 18th century because it controlled this vastly uh, important commodity, coal, fuel power. But that didn't last. Um, you know, Manchester, likewise, is a centre of uh, the Industrial Revolution, cotton spinning and all the rest of it. There were some plans in the mid-19th century to uh, to create an alternative parliament in Manchester. But there's not much chance of that these days, although there's some stirrings through the, this pandemic period in the, in the figure of Andy Burnham being a sort of flag bearer for the North in that same um, you, you could you, sequence of um, North versus South clashes, which which did which did emerge a month or two ago and seems to have subsided again a little bit and, and, and London's reasserted itself through, through Whitehall and Westminster and so on. Uh, but other than that brief kind of industrial revolution period when the tables were turned slightly, that's been the only time I think when the North has, has been preeminent. And I think that's that's unusual, isn't it? It's very unusual in a comparative European context. Because yeah. if you're if you look at, you know, Portugal, you're Lisbon and Porto, Spain, Madrid, Barcelona, Bilbao, Seville, France, yeah. you know, Lyon, Marseille. Germany, lots of cities, you know, because, of course, Germany wasn't unified until 1870-71. But England is very unusual, I think, and and that's distorting on our politics, personally, that everything is sucked into this, as Tom calls it, the great when. Just just broadening the camera back a a, a bit and and maybe going back before the Industrial Revolution, there's a question from William Ritchie, who uh, mentions York. And why did York never emerge as a rival hub to uh, to London, a Roman and Viking capital, ecclesiastical centre, capital of the largest county and river port? So, um, you know, and and uh, there was talk, wasn't there, of moving the House of Lords to York? That was a, mm. a kind of mad Boris plan that <laughs> seems to have bitten the dust, surprisingly. We can fly there from his uh, estuary airport. <laughs> um, but, 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 but York does have, um, I think... Uh, I can't remember some some famous historian described it as the natural capital of Britain. Um, so, what's your take on York, Dan, as a southern softies to you? I guess. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a very pleasant place. Although you know, it did have a large working class community. York centered around the railways and chocolate making and all that sort of thing. But um, but I think there's just the brute fact of geography again that London is just that much closer to that kind of European core. The core prosperous zone of Europe, which I think extends from southeast England through the Low Countries, through the Rhineland, through you know uh, into northern Italy. That has always been, for at least a thousand years, the most prosperous, dynamic part of uh, economic part of Europe. And you know the Thames faces it more or less. And so, just that proximity factor, frankly, was as decisive for you know the growth of London in the southeast as the width of the English Channel was to the security of, of Britain. Um, I, you know, people sometimes say, you know, the unique stability of uh, the British political history is because of the glories of our constitution and all that sort of thing, which I think is important. But I do think the width of the English Channel has been pretty decisive. It meant that Napoleon and the Kaiser and all those sorts of threats just couldn't march over here very easily. The, the Scepter Isle factor. So geography, uh, yet again, proving to be Destiny, I think we need a break. Uh, I might go and have a scone. Damn, I expect you want a scone or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> cream over jam, jam over cream, who knows? Um, we will see you after this break. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back uh, from Exercising Your Whippets to The Rest is History. And we're talking about the North-South Divide. Now, let's talk about the, you know, we've dealt with some of the sort of more trivial questions. Let's get to the real substance. Tom Watts has asked the question. He says, what is going on with different names for meals eaten at different times of day? Dan, breakfast, lunch, tea. Am I wrong? I think it's breakfast, dinner, tea, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course it is. What am I saying? I don't even know my own mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think dinner or lunch. Do you never use the word lunch? I do, but I I always feel slightly effete when I uh, talk about going for a spot of lunch, yes. Well, luncheon, I suppose. Luncheon, (laughs) you'd be John Major then, wouldn't you? Um, But tea, I think the key thing is the evening meal, isn't it? It's tea. Yes. I'm a yeah. tea man. I was brought up with tea. Um, Though when I went to school, everybody else said dinner, to be fair, because I went to a boarding school. Is is it not supper? Well, that is that is a feat. <laughs> no, it's metropolitan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and by supper, you mean a bowl of crunchy nut cornflakes or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, he has multiple I mean, courses. <laughs> who, who, who is it said that, that it's impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth and not be despised by another Englishman? <laughs> 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 because it's because I guess that also what's feeding in here is is the way in which um, issues of class mix with uh, regional variations. Mm. Uh, and I guess, Dan, you would feel that, that one of the ways that the South continues to exert its primacy is that it kind of it seduces people from the North into coming down to the South and kind of living in Clapham. 
Yes, well, that was always as a critique of the uh, ruling classes of the nineteenth century in Britain. Certainly, that they, they they didn't want to get their their sons didn't want to get their hands dirty, and they wanted to turn themselves into uh, Englishmen like Mister Bingley and all that sort of thing. And, and Jane Austen, that they uh, they 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 quickly left the North as fast as they could. But I think the RP thing is really interesting because it it, it is said that um, Robert Peel and William Gladstone, both Lancastrian prime ministers, had a I think Peel more so had a proper Lancashire sort of uh, a twang or burr to his accent, but all that was ironed out in the course of the 19th century through boarding schools and so on, yeah. and then reinforced by the BBC, I guess, through from the 1920s onwards, uh, smoothed out all those wrinkles. I, I definitely think that's right. I mean, I, I remember, um, you might know this book, um, Classes and Cultures by Ross McKibben, mm. Dan, in which he basically argues that England only got a sort of uniform English culture from the 1920s onwards because of things like the BBC, because that erased the differences of dialect and class and and of regional culture by creating a national culture that hitherto had not existed at all. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you know, if you were growing up in the late 19th century and you went to the music hall or to hear a comedian or something, you wouldn't get all, if you were in Liverpool and you went to London, you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get the dialect, you wouldn't get the references. And then actually the idea of an English culture was only created in the 20th century. And as you say, it basically became a southern culture, sort of with northerners dragged on for comic relief or a sort of Wilfred Pickles style sort of, you know, amusing character stuff. But Dominic, does it, I I mean, it goes back much further than that, doesn't it? I mean, at least to the 14th century, when you are starting, when English is starting to become the language of of government Mm. and you're starting to get the sense that the the triangle of london oxford and cambridge is mm. the kind of english that properly should be spoken and i, I mean, it's really telling that chaucer who's the great first great poet of that kind of um, style of english dan i think i'm right in the reef tale there are kind of two geordie students and chaucer mimics what they sound like to a southern a southerner in the in in the late 14th century Yes, I'm trying to remember the court now, but it, 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 it's 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 terms that are designed to draw out those peculiarities of northern speech, which any kind of northern student will have experienced. If you went to university and your pals say, "Go on, Dan, say snooker and pull your copy But it's there, but it's there already in the 14th century. Yeah, I'm glad yeah. we've got him to do it. Um, I mean, it's kind of amazing, <laughs> amazing, yeah. and and that, of course, is something that um that you see even more in a more, even more pronounced way in uh, other european countries and i guess italy would be the classic mm. example of the need essentially to create a unitary single language out of i mean they're called kind of dialects but basically they're a whole range of patchwork of different languages so yeah. in, in england is is kind of precocious in that sense of developing um a common language that actually can be understood relatively early, perhaps relative mm. to, to, to French or to, to to what we call now call Italian. Um, and I think on that theme, uh, let's let's just broaden this out because we've been talking very specifically about England, but I think we we can look at the the whole question about how you know do we overemphasise national history at the expense perhaps of regional history? Um, and there's a question here from Mike J, which uh, expresses this very nicely. Many countries have regional divides most obviously USA, but also many EU countries like Italy again. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what makes the UK split unique. So interestingly, I mean, Mike is talking about the UK. So in England, we've been talking about the North-South divide, and it's generally expressed in that the the South is wealthier. Mm. Uh, The North is relatively more disadvantaged. 
um, in Italy, now it would be the other way around, I guess. That's true. If that's, mm. Yeah, that is true. It's not just true in Italy, though, is it? It's true in France. So I lived for a year in the south of France uh, as a student in the 1990s. And the southerners in, you know, in France absolutely loathed and despised Paris in the north. Mm. And their their image was southerners were seen as criminal, as lazy, as um, um, as as sort of deceitful uh and northerners were seen as but but as taciturn and all so those things are, are not dissimilar but of course northerners were richer than southerners so the southerners were poor and the northerners were rich in france so it's slightly different and italy i guess it's not just north south is it it's i mean effectively as you say it's multiple nations bolted together in the 19th century but the thing about Italy, I guess, uh, in contrast, say to Britain, in Britain, it's always the North has always been relatively speaking poorer. Hadrian's Wall is built because the North essentially is seen by the Romans as not worth conquering. Mm. Whereas in Italy, um, Sicily is the great centre of, of Greek civilization and, and sub- South Italy, and relatively speaking, in antiquity, the North is seen as 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 more backward, and that of course then changes with the yeah. rise of the Roman Empire. But the the it's it's relatively recent that the idea of southern Italy and Sicily is backward comes in because even in the Middle Ages you you know, got this incredible in Sicily this incredible reservoir of Greek Byzantine um, uh, Arab um, Frankish fusion uh, and it's I'm not sure I mean when is it that Sicily becomes is it the 18th century comes to be, become a kind of a backwater relative to to the north of Italy I would say 19th century I would say 19th yeah. century I think. Mm. Um, Dan, um, what about America? So did Northerners, when they went to America, take their Northerness with them? Yes, it's interesting that the, the patterns of migration, uh, depending on where you came from in the British Isles, were very different. And I've always been interested in the so-called Scots-Irish as this uh, this group that w- went in the kind of hillbilly country of Appalachia, but included within their number a large proportion of border English. And there's a great book by David Hackett Fisher called Albion's Seed, which describes how the, you know, the Cavaliers went to Delaware and the Puritans went to New England and what he calls the borderers, both English and Scots, who originally transplanted to Ulster and then another hop to America, um, settled in different parts of the world because, they, frankly, they had different cultures. They had different religions, uh, different stripes of uh, Protestant Christianity, but they had different kind of culture, and, they, and and I've always been fascinated by the the kind of feuding Hatfields versus McCoys ranching culture of the sort of southern and western USA it was pretty much transplanted from the Anglo Scottish border reavers. You know, who wouldn't take a backward step? Who would uh, persist with these feuds down the centuries between different clans? So, Dan, would you say in the nineteenth century United States? North and South go to war. I mean, that's mm. that's the ultimate expression of a North-South divide. Mm. Um, is is that culturally determined rather than determined by geography? Would you say? I think to an extent, in the way that it's, it, it was perceived as the kind of gallant martial races of you know of the South, the, the Southern USA, and uh, that martial culture, I think, which is which was a big part of the Southern identity. Uh, did emerge, I think, from a particular part of the British Isles. And the fact that, and it's, it goes back to our point about if you study regional history, you realise how different it can be because the perspective of English history from the northeast of England is one of centuries of border warfare in comparison to the south of England, which is all pretty tranquil and swords have been beaten into ploughshares pretty early, whereas we're still fighting off the Scots well into the 1700s. 
So that was a, a, a more important fact of life that shaped the culture and, in my view, shaped the kind of macho martial traditions in the northeast of England that, that still persist, to my, uh, in my view, uh, as a result of that. Again, another fact of geography that it was a borderland. And, and like I said, that was also transplanted to the southern USA um, in the 17th, uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Dan, can I ask you a question that picks up on something Tom asked about, mentioned earlier, which is class? Hmm. Northernness, particularly in the 20th century, has come to sort of stand in for working class, hasn't it? Hmm. So yeah. particularly in the 1930s, I think, in the Depression, and then in the 1960s, obviously, when you had kind of new wave cinema and you had the hmm. Beatles and you had this sort of Harold Wilson becoming prime minister, northernness and, and Coronation Street, most famously, I suppose, or, Catherine, or the novels of Catherine Cookson, northernness has just become sort of almost slightly lazily equated with this sort of working class authenticity and, and grit. Hmm. Is that a 20th century thing or does that have deeper roots? I think it's got much deeper roots. And, you, and often this north-south thing, why it matters is because um, they're kind of freighted with meaning, aren't they? And um, kind of value judgments about northerners being these noble, Spartan, you know, honest to goodness, really friendly, as opposed to, um, well, well, when John Vanbrugh came up north to, to build Seton Delaval Hall uh, in the 18th century, he said, I much prefer it up here to the tame and sneaking south. <laughs> and, he, and he was a southern. He says, they're all hearty, honest to goodness, you know, hardworking chaps up here, and I, I much prefer their company. And you see that, whether it's true, true or not, <laughs> about friendliness and honesty and all those sorts of things. But I think the industrial culture of the northeast, was uh, of the north in general, was certainly decisive because it wasn't as, the economy wasn't as diverse as the south. And there was a lot of people who were in the same boat or um, you know, if you take County Durham in 1900, about um, 40 or 50 percent of all the adult males of working age were coal miners. So it was an extraordinary kind of monoculture where everyone had the same experiences, expectations. Uh, they were all doing the same sorts of work, whereas the rest of the country, well, Birmingham was a city of a thousand trades and all that sort of thing. And the south was very diverse. That, that sense of all being in, in it together was a big feature of, of the North and its economy and therefore its identity, I think. Well, um, on, on, on the issue of, of class and region, um, we've already touched on football, but we've, we've got a question about another sport um, from Tides of History, um, excellent uh, Twitter account on the history of the Labour Party, um, which asks, are perceptions of rugby league and rugby union symbolic of the historical north-south divide? League seen as working class industrial, but parochial union as middle class white collar and embedded in the establishment. Um, do either of you rugby fans? I'm not, so I don't know anything about rugby at all, but um very happy I'm to not. talk about cricket. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? But of course it, it misses, you know, some of Rugby Union's biggest hotbeds, places like Gloucester, where it's very much working class game. So mm. the sort of the stereotype sort of does miss something, but I guess mm. there's a seed of truth there, isn't there? Dan, that Rugby League yeah. is seen as sort of, Rugby League is, is gritty and authentic and Rugby Union is kind of Will Carling. Yeah, to be, I think it's shaking that that slightly poncy rep, reputation off these days, isn't it? R R rugby Union and compared to Rugby League, I mean. Um, but it's interesting that the the uh, it's what, rugby of any code wasn't uniformly popular across the north of England. I mean, it's never really taken off in the northeast of England, for example. Why? Well, Harry Pearson, who's a great writer on the northeast non-league scene, um, I'm paraphrasing his argument slightly, but he, he more or less made the point that the Geordies didn't need to prove how tough they were. 
Right. So, so there was no, there was no need for outlets like rugby, which is fundamentally about men showing off about how hard they are. What what North, northeastern working class men was an outlet for their artistry and their skill and their athleticism, which is hence why we produce some of the greatest footballers, Beardsley, Gascoigne, Waddle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that's where they came from. Um, I think it's an interesting theory, and, and, and fundamentally, football. I think we can both all agree is just a better and more exciting game than rugby. <laughs> <laughs> so it was always good. It, yeah, yeah, it, it is. But obviously, it's it's not as exciting as cricket. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> cricket, the uh, the national sport of England, is of course a sport that is played equally in North and South. And uh, you know, if you think about um, Surrey playing Yorkshire, that's one of the the great in sporting clashes. Twenty-seven um, people. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, millions following. Millions following from from the comfort of their sitting room. I think cricket is 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 the closest we've got to a genuinely classless game in in England because it, it is the summer game of the coalfields. Cricket, without question. And there was a great footage of when. Um, as Ben Stokes scored that uh, the winning runs, and it was a bunch of new, a big crowd of Newcastle supporters at White Hart Lane watching this on screens. And when he scores the winning runs, the whole crowd go mental. Yeah, in a way yeah. that I don't think they would do for you know England rugby union team. Um, and it is, it is, it's 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 whole it's, it's popularities across the whole of England across classes in a way that neither football nor rugby really can say that. Brilliant. So cricket's the best. I'm glad you <laughs> on that. Dominic, have you got another question for us? I do. I want to ask now. Somebody asked and I can't. Uh, oh, yeah. Somebody, uh, where is he? Somebody called Taff. Um, Alistair Taff. Yes, Alistair Taff says, aptly named, he asks about Wales. He says, where yes. does Wales fit in the north-south divide? Or do you just exclude it because it's not England? Or, he says, controversially, would you incorporate it into the south? I don't think many people would incorporate it into the south. But do you think there's a sort of commonality between Wales and the north of England, Dan? I, I think so. Politically, I think there, there's a really interesting point. that again, I mentioned James Hawes' book recently, and he, he's got this useful way of framing um, this as um, uh, outer Britain. Which is basically anything north of the the seven wash sort of line. Um, he's, he, he's got this line about um, between about eighteen eighty and and about two thousand and fifteen. Oh, put it a bit later than that. Up until twenty fifteen, Outer Britain um, coalesced politically against the southeast, and up until twenty fifteen, that was known as the Labour Party, basically, because the Labour Party's strength was based on Wales, Northern England, and Scotland. And that was a useful counterbalance against the Tory southeast, which was pretty impregnably Tory from about eighteen eighty six onwards, and and that kind of sh the shared industrial base led to a shared political culture in the industrial part, certainly of, of Wales, Northern England, and Scotland. But then I guess there's a big north south divide within Wales as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I mean, I think also what's interesting about um, Wales is we also haven't talked about East Anglia uh, very much, and. Um, Actually, one of the kind of the, the, the earliest um, historical documents that we have from Britain, which is uh, Gildas, who's, it, Dominic, very like you, kind of Daily Mail, <laughs> despairing of the nation, ranting <laughs> about the state of the nation. <laughs> to Gildas write articles with the headline, The Great Betrayal. Why, oh, why? <laughs> why, oh, why have the Romans left? And he does this after <laughs> the Romans have withdrawn. Um, and he is talking about a divided Britain, but his division is East and West. So he is saying that, that that's that that's the division and um it's generally assumed that he's talking about um the what we would call the britons uh and the invading 
Anglo-Saxons who were coming across the North Sea. But it's not absolutely apparent that that is what he's talking about. It may be that he's expressing a kind of sense of a fundamental divide that existed in maybe the province of Britannia, maybe before Britannia, that, you know, is is certainly to Gildas as significant as the idea of a North-South divide. But I think that is something that's that's been lost. I don't think anyone would really think of that now. Although the, the you know the east the east west division in England is an interesting one because when in UKIP's heyday, their their support tended to be concentrated right on the east coast, didn't it? Places like Lincolnshire and uh, Essex and places like that. That kind of North Sea. Um, I went strange. to I went to I went went through Newark once down, and they had a UKIP shop, which is <laughs> not the kind of, not the kind of thing. Um, UKIP banners and badges and you keep reading material i mean yeah. obviously you know tom you'd be very unfamiliar with this with your metropolitan uh, ways no I've, I've obviously uh the people who knew it clearly liked it i mean i mean that's an interesting thing isn't it this the whole we you talked you made down what i thought was a, a a really interesting point about you know this sort of idea of the of the european corridor if you yeah. like stretching from you know from london down to i don't know milan or wherever yeah. Yeah. um and obviously Europe and our relationship with Europe and the idea of the North-South divide, they're, they're very tightly enmeshed now, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I remember very vividly, it's really stuck in my mind a few months after the Brexit referendum, I'm talking to some academics and one of them saying, I wish the BBC would stop going to the north of England and interviewing all these people who don't know anything. <laughs> And I thought, there you have, you know, there in but, one sentence is the sort of key to so much, so many of our current discontents. So I was going to say, f- follow up on that, that one of the things that's happened recently with um, the, 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 the growth of kind of virtual communications is that actually that sense of geographically based divisions has slightly become confused because I would, I would guess that kind of Remainer Central is London and university towns essentially i mean it's those are the absolute hotbeds which your um, triangle and, tom london oxford cambridge isn't it i mean yeah it it, it it is but it's also canterbury for instance um uh, i guess you know wherever there are large quantities of students um and and so that i think has slightly scrambled the the stereotypical regionally based divisions but no, I think that's a good point. And Dan, there mm. is an interesting thing, isn't there, which is that Sunderland and the Northeast, maybe more generally, has come to stand for Brexit yeah. in people's minds. So people, yeah. I think partly because they announced the first results, but also yes. because of Nissan. Yep. So often in sort of Remainer iconography, mm. they point to the Northeast and they say, you know, these benighted um, dupes, who have voted for their own economic immolation, self-immolation. And it's the Northeast that they always sort of, that is always produced as Exhibit A. Do you think... But Newca- much- New- Newcastle voted Remain, didn't it? Exactly, yeah. That, that, that's so, When everyone points to the North as, you know, the the, uh, the Brexit thing, that's where it, it was born and uh, its strength was. You know, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, all the big m- metropolises of the, of the, the North were, were solidly Remain. It's because it's where basically... Most of the kind of middle classes live, or, or particularly the sort of public sector salaria, we might call them, um, tend to be concentrated. Whereas small town northern England did, hasn't really seen the benefits of this supposed golden age, you know, since since the nineteen seventies, and is still pretty disgruntled. And there was a lot of how could they be so ungrateful to Sunderland when they voted? It was it wasn't it, 
it was, I think it was about 60 40, wasn't it? So you shouldn't yeah. assume that it was, you know, a, a, a consensus position by any means, but still, I think it is the smaller towns and people from Sunderland won't like me describing Sunderland. I was about to say, I, I Jonathan, t, TV's yeah. Jonathan Wilson, who we, oh, uh, that'd be hell on. Um, <laughs> Mr. Sunderland, who I yeah. used to play football with, he will be outraged by this sort of talk. <laughs> and, and, and Dan, I mean, you know, to someone like me, the, the accents and the identities of Newcastle, Sunderland, Teesside, it's all, you know, it's all kind of northeast, isn't it? But obviously the fact that you've got these rivers and even in such a short space, regional identities are incredibly strong, are they not? They are. And I think uh, always look to rivers, rivers and railway lines, and particularly the watersheds of rivers, because I I've, uh, I describe the main accent dividing line in the northeast as the beetroot line which is basically follows the watershed dividing line between the rivers Tyne and Weir. If you know the northeast, comes out of the coast of Whitburn, kind of heads diagonally southwest. Anyone from north of that line would pronounce the word beetroot, like I'm pronouncing it, i.e. correctly. Anyone from the northeast <laughs> from south of that line would, it's slightly, it's slightly elongated drawl, it'd be more like Bait Road. That that's and it's immediately detectable to northeast ears. You just ask them to say that word, and you can place them north or south of that line. And the history of parochialism, I think, has been a massive feature of English history, and uh, not getting on with your neighbours. Yeah, not not getting on with your neighbours. That is what this podcast has has been <laughs> all about, and I think that that is the perfect note on which to end it. Um, I mean, I think it's really interesting that this week's subject basically. It's provoked our, our biggest digital mailbag yet. So um, apologies if we didn't get to your question, but um, there'll be lots more opportunities to, uh, to, to to ask us questions. So do please uh, keep tweeting us at The Rest History. No is in the Twitter handle. And we'll read out the best of your comments next week. Dan, thanks so much for uh, for coming on and being brilliant as ever. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. That was wonderful. And a reminder, we're releasing pods twice a week at the moment, Mondays and Thursdays, so toodle pip. Ta-ra! Gun canny. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot com.